Well, hello, church, and welcome, neighbors. My name is Pastor Michael, if we haven't met yet, and I'm glad to spend a couple minutes with you today. I'd like to begin by thinking about a question that maybe you've asked yourself, and if it hasn't been something that's been in your mind, it's definitely something you've heard somebody else say. The question goes like this, I am a good person, so what does Jesus offer to me? I'm already a good person. I already think I'm going to heaven. What is it that Jesus or being a religious kind of person could possibly do for me? I, I don't want to waste time going to church. I don't need to sing the songs. Everything's so awkward. And particularly now that we can't actually gather in person, there's just something that's lacking. And I'm already a good person. So why do I need to worry about religious things? And I think we're going to take a look together today at a text that, uh, with a guy that actually in the Bible literally asked this question, and Jesus gave him a very direct answer, but it might not be the answer that you expect. Even if you're not familiar with Jesus, um, especially if you are familiar with Jesus, he asks a very particular question that if you grew up in church or have a religious background, you think you know the answer to. But Jesus doesn't answer in the way that we expect. It's, it's, it's a fascinating passage, and it falls in line with our next step in the series that we've been going through that we've called Forgiving, in which we've been taking a look at what it is that Jesus expects for us as far as how we express forgiveness towards other people um, and how it actually is impossible without him. Um, and this is going to, again, seem to be a side conversation, but it, it highlights heart issues and underlying things that really are helpful to help us understand how we should be forgiving and how Jesus is forgiving towards us. So as we begin now, I'd like to invite you to pray with me the disciples' prayer. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. So, if you would turn with me, navigate with me to the book of Matthew in the Bible, and I'm going to be in Matthew chapter 19 to begin with. We're going to be in Matthew 19, starting in verse 16. And before we close the sermon, we'll jump to the end of chapter 20, but I'll let you know when we get there. If you just have your Bible open or navigated to, uh, that would be great. So Matthew chapter 19, and I'm going to begin reading in verse 16. Now we had jumped forward a little ways into chapter 20 already last last time that we were together uh, because it was an occasion for Mother's Day um, and now we're jumping back in time a little bit if you're if you're following along chronologically so Matthew 19 verse 16 and behold a man came up to him him being Jesus saying teacher what good deed must I do to have eternal life and he said to him why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you enter life, if you would enter life, keep the commandments. He said to him, which ones? And Jesus said, you shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. 
and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, all these I have kept. What do I still lack? Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, go, sell what you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. And when the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. So here's a fascinating interaction with a guy who comes up to Jesus and says, Hey, Jesus, uh, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? How can I live forever? Uh, and Jesus responds by saying, you keep the commandments. And he says, well, you know, there's lots of commandments, so which ones? So there's a couple of things that we know about this guy already. Um, one is that he's somebody who is familiar with the law, and he's somebody who is, uh, is familiar with the broadness of the law. Now, in the beginning of chapter 19, we see a group of Pharisees, teachers of the Old Testament scriptures, who, um, who were not necessarily following God, but they were trying to trap Jesus. Remember, we had a conversation about divorce and remarriage. That was because Pharisees had showed up at Jesus's place and were trying to get him, essentially trying to get him killed. So if, if you're interested in that, kind of, uh, in that kind of a conversation, then listen to that, that teaching on Matthew 19, uh, the first couple of verses there. But this guy probably isn't a Pharisee, because if he were, they likely would have introduced him. But I wonder if he was rolling along with those guys. He was uh, maybe a distant disciple of them. He didn't, he didn't actually like buy into all of their lifestyle stuff, but he knew what they taught. He liked to go with them when they went on road trips. And so now he's in the vicinity of Jesus and he says, hey, teacher, <clears throat> what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to me, so Jesus said, why do you ask me about what is good? There's only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. So, so he's asking the question, what good deed do I have to do? And Jesus is saying, you want to talk about goodness? Like God is the only one who is good and you're never going to be God. So what, why do you even like, I don't think I understand the question. And he says, well, uh, he says, if you want to follow God, then keep the commandments. He says, well, which ones? And then Jesus lists off, uh, Jesus lists off the commandments that we find in, in Exodus and again in Deuteronomy that are related to how people are supposed to relate to one another. So there are 10 commandments. The first four of those commandments are related to how people relate to God. And the last six of the 10 commandments are about interpersonal relationships and how we ought to be with one another. So Jesus quotes back to him the ones that are about how to deal with other people. And this guy's response is, yeah, yeah, I got that under control. Can't you see? I'm a good person. I'm not, I, I shall honor my father and mother. I'm not stealing. I'm not lying all the time. I'm not like, I'm not, I'm not a bad person. Like I'm not a bad person. So, so what more do I lack? And Jesus looks into his heart and sees that this is a guy who has an outward religious expression, but has no inward religious life. Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, go and sell what you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. He had lived a religious experience as far as he could, as far as 
he was willing to go. He grew up in a religious culture, and so he knew that the Ten Commandments were important. And maybe he, you know, didn't ever really violate them so much. And so, you know, I'm a, I'm a good person. Like, is this, is this all there is to life? And Jesus says, okay, so you have followed then, perhaps, and I don't think he gives them this, but he gives them a perhaps. Perhaps you have followed the letter of the law and you've missed what it was pointing to. Maybe you're, you don't bear false witness, but maybe your perspective on the other humans around you isn't greater. And maybe you don't steal, but maybe you're just greedy about the things that you already have. And so if you want to get to the heart of it, then give away everything that you have. Give it to the poor, and then you'll have treasure in heaven, and then come and follow me. This guy has an invitation to be the 13th apostle. Come and follow me. Learn from me. But he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Jesus' challenge to him was to give up this cultural expression of his religion and to accept to take on Jesus's actual identity. He said, don't just play the game. Don't just be a, pretend to be a good person. Actually follow through. Let me change what is going on in your heart. Take on my identity. Because you say that you love your neighbor as yourself, but you love neither me nor your neighbor. We've, we've seen that Forgiving starts with humility and that by entrusting our life to God, we are humbled to serve the undeserving. And this guy is saying, yeah, I I'm a good person. I do the religious thing, but that doesn't actually like change how I, how I interact with other people so much. Like it doesn't mean I, ha I have to be generous with my money. Don't you know that I earned this money? This was my inheritance from my father. Whatever the situation is, this is my money. And so why would I just give it away? Unless we be too quick to be judgmental towards this guy, I would like to ask, what are you terrified that God might ask you to give up? Because whatever you're terrified that God might ask you to give up, that thing is likely an idol. It's something that you worship greater than or on par with God. So what are the things that we're afraid to give up and then what does it look like to hold Jesus in one hand and our idols in the other? What does it look like for us to hold Jesus in one hand and our idols in the other and to try to live life in this way that says, I'm a good person, I'm a religious person, um, I do the right thing the best that I know how to, but I also am just living for myself. I'm being selfish and, and, I, and I don't give honor to the people that are supposed to give honor to and I'm not serving other people like, what does that look like? Perhaps our knowledge, the things that we know and our practice become disconnected. The things that we know and the things that we do end up being two separate things. That's hypocrisy. And, and, and before, before, if you're, before we start throwing accusations about all the hypocrisy that goes around in the church, you don't have to be in the church to be a hypocrite. Like, I run into hypocrites absolutely everywhere I go in the world. But that's what it looks like to try to hold Jesus in one hand and our idols in the other. We're in 
constant tension and constant stress, trying to hold two things that cannot be reconciled. Jesus says, either you follow me and take on my identity and I change your heart, or you walk away sad. This was challenging not just to this guy, it was challenging to his disciples. Look with me in verse 23. Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And when the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who, 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 who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, With man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Then Peter said in reply, See, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? And Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. So Jesus turns his attention to his disciples as this guy's walking away and says, I, I, I'm telling you what, it's real, real hard for a rich person to walk into the kingdom of God. Like I, it, it's, it's real. It's, it's like trying to shove a literal camel through the eye of a literal needle. Now, you may have heard a, a, a conversation at some point that, that, that this is a reference to the needle gate in Jerusalem that, that camels would have to get down on their knees and kind of crawl through. Um, and that, that gate did exist, but it didn't exist until hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years after Jesus was talking. So Jesus wouldn't have brought it up in his teaching. What he's, what he's saying here is a literal camel through a literal needle. And it is that difficult for somebody, for a rich person to go into the kingdom of heaven. And the disciples, what do you, what do you mean it's that hard? Like, who can be saved then? Because the disciples look, and the disciples grew up in a religious context where the people who had money were people who were blessed by God. We don't, we don't know any, you know, we don't know any mindset like that today. This is obviously just an ancient mindset. <clears throat> I'm kidding. Sarcasm. The, the disciples grew up in a religious context where people who had money were obviously blessed by God. And if they're blessed by God, then they can inherit the kingdom of God. If, if God has already given them rich blessings on earth, then obviously they're going to be blessed when they get into heaven. But Jesus says that's not actually the way that things work in the kingdom. And if you're not willing to give up the treasures and possession, if you're not willing to lay those things at my feet and follow me, then you're going to have a hard time bowing down to me as the king and serving others in humility. Because that's what my kingdom is actually like. He says it's difficult. Real difficult. But it's not impossible. 
Because with God, all things are possible. And, and in, this, in this whole conversation that we've been having about forgiving, and really if we're talking about inherit, inheriting eternal life, we're talking about God's forgiveness of us. Um, the thing that Jesus, the people that Jesus has held up as an example are children. Is unless you have the humility of a child, then you're not going to get into the kingdom. And so a, 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 a rich person is saying, like, I don't, God, don't you know how great I am? Don't you know how blessed I am? Like, don't you know how much money I have? Like, you have to let me in. And God says, I do what I want, but you're my creation. Submit yourself to me. Serve me. Love me. <clears throat> It's difficult, but it's not impossible. And as Western Americans, we can sometimes get hung up on what the definition of rich is. Our preferred definition of a rich person is somebody who has more than me. And if everybody shares that definition, that a rich person is somebody who has more than me, then there will always be somebody who has less than me, and there will always be somebody who is richer than me. But that's not Jesus' definition of wealth. And, and if you look at world history, and if you look at the place that we occupy in world history, you look at poverty levels, um, any time that you read as, as an as a American in the 21st century, regardless of how much income you actually have, any time you read about rich people in the scripture, your, your best bet, it's your safest bet to assume that they're talking about you. So you're a good person and you come to Jesus and say, is this really all there is? And he says, well, give up all your stuff. And there's a tension there where each of us today has to ask the question, is Jesus asking me to sell everything and give it all away? Like I don't have a lot, we might say, but does he actually want me to sell where I'm living? Does he want me to get rid of my phone and just go and live in poverty somewhere? That's the invitation to this guy. And if we're not willing to entertain and pray about what it is that he wants for us in that manner, then maybe we're walking away just as sad. Jesus says, hey, look, when, when all this is over, when, when the new world arrives, I'm going to set you guys up. I'm going to set you 12 up on 12 thrones to judge the tribes of Israel. So their inheritance is going to be rulers over the nation that they're in. And I'm not saying that we as modern day believers are going to be judging the tribes of Israel. I'm not entirely sure how the mechanics of all that works out. I know that in other places in scripture in 1 Corinthians talks about how we will be judging angels. So there is an element of judging like when this, this, this new world order of Jesus' kingdom fully arrived on earth comes, everything will actually be different. And Jesus says, what are you building your inheritance for? Are you building your inheritance to pass on to your kids? Are you building your inheritance to pass on to your kids here? Are you building an inheritance in heaven, in my kingdom? And Peter says, look, Jesus, we followed you. We gave up everything. We've left everything to follow you. Like, what are you asking us to give up now? And Jesus says, of course, like you've, you've done the inheritance thing. 
And verse 29 says, And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last. This, <clears throat> this last sentence here is actually a cliffhanger because it ties, ties everything together in the whole series and it ties us directly to the parable that we're going to be talking about next week. So, so the last will be first. If you want to know exactly what that is, then I'd encourage you to tune in next time. Um, but he's saying, look, like you guys, if you guys have left everything to follow me, then don't you know, don't you trust that I'm going to balance all this out in the kingdom? The Son of Man came to serve. And he points to the family that the disciples have left behind. He says, anybody who hasn't left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands, like this family relationship, you guys, you guys have, have left those behind to follow me. Which just leads me to ask the question, whose opinion matters more to us than Jesus's? Whose opinion matters more to us than Jesus's? Is, is our father, our parents' opinion matter more to us? Does our kids' opinion matter more to us than Jesus's? Do our friends at our workplace or do our friends at our school's opinion matter more to us than Jesus's? Like Jesus is saying, look, like who is your identity? Who is your allegiance to? Maybe, maybe even celebrities' opinions matter more to us than ours. They could be teachers and pastors that we respect. And, and, and when we come down to it, it's like, well, yeah, that's what the Bible says, but I really want to follow this one person who I like a lot. And so I'm not going to wrestle with the tension of what the scriptures are. I'm just going to go with this person. Whoever's opinion matters more to us than Jesus has become an idol for us. So we've looked at, looked at a couple of different idols what does it look like to hold Jesus in one hand or idols in the other? Whose opinion matters more to us than, than Jesus? And, and, and it just, well, I want to highlight the big idea and bring it to a point of clarity. Because of, because of what Jesus is doing here, I need you to understand this. That Jesus does not ask us for more than we can afford to give up. Jesus doesn't ask us for more than we can afford to give up. He, he says to the, to the young guy, like, Sell everything and follow me. And the guy's like, yeah, that, that, I can't afford to do that. But Jesus doesn't ask us for anything more. But Jesus doesn't ask us to give up. But Jesus doesn't ask us for more than we can afford to give up. He could have sold his possessions. Yes, his life would have been radically different. Everything about what he was doing would be changed. But could he afford it? Would he stop being a person if he didn't have his wealth, his money? And, and the disciples, too, have, have left their families behind and their homes, their lands, to follow this rabbi Jesus. It was a lot to walk away from the parents' business. It was a lot to leave them behind. But Jesus doesn't ask us for more than we can afford to give up. Especially if we can see the value in what he's doing. 
there's a contrast between Jesus' interaction with this, this young guy and with a blind man at the end of chapter 20. Turn with me to chapter 20, and I'm just going to read it in, in verse 29. And as they went out of Jericho, a great crowd followed him. And behold, there were two blind men sitting by the roadside. And when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. The crowd rebuked them, telling them to be silent. And they cried out all the more, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And stopping, Jesus called them and said, what do you want me to do for you? They said to him, Lord, let our eyes be opened. And Jesus in pity touched their eyes and immediately, they recovered their sight and followed him. So we've got a, a guy in chapter 19 who has an invitation to be the 13th apostle. And he goes away sad because he's not willing to give up his money. And we've got two poor beggars on the side of the road in a dangerous part of town who hear that there's some big entourage walking by, that Jesus is walking past and he's on his way to Jerusalem. And everybody in the entourage, all the disciples have heard that Jesus' plan is to go to Jerusalem. We've got to get to Jerusalem. We've got to have the Passover in Jerusalem. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. His face is set there. He's trying to get there. It's time to go. And so I can imagine as they're walking along, the, the, the disciples are pushing him. Jesus, we got to go. we got to go. we got to get there. we got to get there. we got to get there. And the, and, and the there are these two blind men that are at the side of the road crying out, Son of David, have mercy! And Jesus stops the forward momentum of his life to ask how he could help. He has a soft heart to people who are crying out. And Jesus softens our hearts towards those he loves. And he loves these two guys. And in pity, he heals their eyes. And where the rich guy walked away sad to be comforted by his money, these two blind guys left everything they'd ever known, perhaps, and followed him. It comes down to a question of cost versus value. And I don't know anything about Oscar Wilde. I, you might know that name. I actually don't know anything about him except that he said this, and I think it's brilliant, and I have come back to it over and over again. Oscar Wilde said, a cynic is a man who knows the price of everything and the value of nothing. A cynic is a man who knows the price of everything and the value of nothing. Like He knows <laughs> how much things cost, but doesn't know what is worth time to invest in. And this rich guy said, my wealth is more valuable than Jesus. And this blind guy said, Jesus is more valuable than anything that I'm going to accrue or anything that I'm going to invest my life in here sitting on the side of the road. And so I'll leave what little I have to follow him. And the rich guy says, I can't leave what I have to follow you. So what does it look like for us to trust Jesus's value system 
Because his is different. What does it look like for us to trust Jesus' value system? Our perspective is going to shift quite significantly. Because to Jesus, who you are matters way more than what you do or what you have. To Jesus, your character is way more important than your competence or your collection. To Jesus, who you are, the kind of person that you are, deep down in the middle of the night when there's nobody looking, matters way more than the things that you do and the things that you accomplish or the stuff that you can collect. And so if we trust Jesus' value system, we're going to let him shape our hearts first. And we're going to have open hands to any blessing that he might entrust to us for a limited time. And we'll be people of grace, extending kindness to the undeserving. We'll be people of peace who rest and trust in God, that he's the one who's in control. We'll be full of love and joy, patience and kindness. Because Jesus is transforming our hearts. And it can feel like a lot when we come face to face with Jesus. But I'd like for you to understand today that Jesus never asks us for more than we can afford to give up.